well, good morning. Let me say that to you all. Good morning. Welcome to Salem Chapel in this auditorium or watching online. We're so grateful to have you here today. Um, I love Christmas carols, but at the same time, for whatever reason, I was like, man, it's, it just feels weird singing them. Like this year has been so, like that's, a, that's an understatement of the century, I know, but it's like, yeah, I'm excited that we're in the Christmas season. At the same time, it feels weird that we're already in the Christmas season. But nevertheless, I'm glad that you're here today on this first Sunday in December of 2020. I just want to make mention of something before we get into God's Word today. And I just want to uh, emphasize this piece of paper that I have in my hand. If you call Salem Chapel your home, you've received this by email or in the mail or both. And uh, we want to make sure that um, no one uh, is missed. And so if you didn't get one of these uh, papers that I'll describe here in a second what it is, you can pick this up at the Welcome Center right under the TVs in the lobby. Um, I wrote this letter because as we close out 2020, I think it's important that we take time to highlight all the things that God has done. You know, for some of you, you could really view 2020 as almost just a year that you're ready to get past. Some of you may view it as a, as a year of inactivity. It feels like everything just paused. You've, you've had to hunker down, uh, you know, whatever your situation is. And one of the things that I want you to know in regards to Salem Chapel is I want this letter front and back to testify to the reality of what we should all know to be true, that the Lord's mission is pandemic proof. 2020 didn't take God by surprise. In fact, uh, Lori and I will be here, our family will be here four years starting uh, this coming January, just a month from now. And I, can, I didn't say that for you to applause, so you can if you want, but that's not why I said that. Um, so thank you, but that's not why. I wasn't looking for a compliment, but thank you for clapping, all three of you. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but here's, here's why I say that. Because even though 2020 took us all by surprise and all of us have experienced things that we would not want to experience again, there has not been a more fruitful year since we have been here that I've experienced at Salem Chapel that can really compare to 2020 when we think of the ministry that we have, the, we have had the opportunity to engage in inside of these walls, the scope that our ministry has had outside of these walls more than 2020 since I've been here. Now, I can't comment on before that, but I can comment since 2017, and praise be to God for that. And so what I wrote here in regards to our church and in this city and with our mission partners around the world is written so that if you call this place your home, if this place is your family, and, and especially if you've given sacrificially of your finances to this church, you can see the return on investment that God has shown in a uh, unpredictable year at least to testify to the reality that we have the privilege of being used by God to be a part of his church, little c, to impact the kingdom of God on this earth, in Winston-Salem, in this state, and around the world. And we praise God for that. I don't have time to highlight all of those. I say that, and if you're new here, if I'm sitting where you are and I'm brand new, I'm grabbing one of these, because I want to see what's this church all about. 
And so just want to make mention of that on the back. There's also just a goal that we have as we close out 2020. This has been a tight financial year for the church because it's been a tight financial year for everyone. We've cut everything from the budget that we could cut, but at the same time, ministry has still happened. And so what we're asking is for $25,000 to come in above and beyond our normal giving so that we can go into 2020 in the black and not at a deficit. You see there what that will allow us to do as well going into 2021. We have been putting so many things, building so many things in regards to discipleship on how you will be discipled in a better way in 2021 and knowing how to disciple yourself, how to disciple uh, each other if you're married, how to disciple your family and putting tangible tools in your hand that are going to help you grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ because after all that's our mission on how we care for one another in our church. Uh, We've been investing great amounts of time in that. We've also been investing outside of this city and how we can partner with other churches that stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ and plant churches together and train pastors uh, of churches together, not just Salem Chapel, but churches across Winston-Salem to do that collectively. So God's got some amazing things in store in 2021, but that's because... He has done great things in 2020. So I just make mention of that and want to celebrate that. All right, turning your Bibles to Judges chapter 17. We have one more week. Next week, we will close out the series, Lord willing. So we got two more weeks in the book of Judges. I'm curious, how many of you, for the first time ever, would say, I read through the entire book of Judges? I've never done that before. Raise your hand. All right, uh, you need to be celebrated because as you have come to realize, Judges is a pretty crazy book, right? <laughs> right? It, it's, it's probably not uh, something that, um, you know, you would have expected. You're like, yeah, isn't that book the one with Gideon in it and a guy named Samson? And, and that's probably all you knew about the book of Judges. And all of a sudden you're finding out the many squirrely things that, happened in the book of Judges because people took their eyes off the Lord, stopped serving the Lord, wanted to do what was right in their own eyes, and unfortunately experienced the consequences of those things. We're going to see that again in Judges 17. Some of you are like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Man, I, I, I want to break the cycle of sin, wash, repeat. Right? And, and, and that over and over again. And here's the difference between what we're going to look at today from really what we've looked at all the other weeks since we've been in this series since September. And if you're new with us, we're in this series entitled Broken People, Faithful God. It's really what we see in the book of Judges. We're reminded of, of humanity's brokenness. But in understanding our brokenness as people, we also have the opportunity to embrace the amazing reality that we serve a faithful God. And so in Judges 17, what we're going to find is it's not so much Israel sins because they're practicing idolatry, they're worshiping something more than the Lord, an enemy comes in and conquers a tribe, the people of Israel crowd to the Lord for deliverance, he raises up a person to deliver Israel. We're not seeing that for the next five chapters as we close out this book. What we're going to see now is all the strife that Israel is experiencing, it's all in-house. No outside force coming in. It's all their own doing. And so the verse that I want us to to highlight for you as we jump into these two chapters is really verse six. And 
Many of you are probably familiar with this verse if you spend any time in Judges before this series, but I'm going to read this first because it's really our jumping off point today. Judges 17, 6 says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone, say that word, everyone, say it one more time, everyone, not some, not many, not few, not most, everyone. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And just to remind you of the uh, time that we're in in Israel's history, so you had 12 tribes. They've already been given the allotment of the land. The land's been broken up to each tribe, and, and those tribes were responsible for, for, uh, for acquiring that land and, and, and uh, defeating the people that were in that land and setting up uh, the, the ways that the Lord had commanded them to live in that land. And so they've all been given land. Judges 1 showed us that they didn't drive out everyone like God had told them to. But there wasn't necessarily a king. There was tribal leaders of these 12 tribes, but Israel was not necessarily a nation yet. So while that's an obvious statement that there was no king in Israel, the emphasis is not to, to, to highlight once again the obvious that there was no physical king in Israel, but it was to emphasize the reality that Israel did not see God as their king. They didn't see they had a king. They saw that they had no authority. And because they saw they had no authority, then they saw that they had every right to do what was right in their own eyes rather than being obedient to what the Lord had said. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the title of the message. Get your eyes checked. Because if I'm living according to what's right in my own eyes, that I'm seeing life wrong as a follower of Jesus Christ. See, if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, man, I am so thrilled that you're here. But if you're living life according to your own eyes, I mean, that's true of every one of us before we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're living life according to your own eyes, it's time to get our eyes checked. See, here's the idea that I want you to get today, and it comes straight out of verse six. How you see your life reveals who you are living your life for. How, are you see your, how do you see your life today? As a means for you just to live life for you? The goal of your life is your happiness? What makes me feel good? Me first? How you see your life reveals who you are living your life for. Because as we know, we can all say the right thing. Like if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not telling you anything new that says that you ought to be living your life according to God's word. Nobody would disagree with that. Everyone would say that. But if you look at how you're living your life, what would that say? Because that's way more important and way more impactful than what you say. See, what was true of the children of Israel in verse 6, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it's really no different today, right? Everybody does what's right in their own eyes for the most part. We live in a culture that loves this phrase, your truth. Have you heard that before? Johnny, what's your truth? Well, let me tell you what my truth is. 
And so if we've got, you know, hundreds of people in, in, this, in this building today, and we went by that, then we got hundreds of truths. Have you ever thought about this, just putting common sense to that? Like if there's hundreds of truths, then somebody's got to be wrong. Because you can't have a truth, and I can't have a truth, and we both have the right truth. But we live in such a subjective society that if my truth disagrees with your truth, then all of a sudden I'm closed-minded. Have you ever found today that everyone loves to be so accepting as long as you agree with me? Like, I'm such an open-minded person. I can't believe you think that way. Because we live in a society that just wants to do what's right in our own eyes. And I want to encourage you with something that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ... In other words, if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you believe in a perfect life that he lived for your sinful life. He died on the cross for your sin, paying the penalty that your sinful life deserves. He rose again three days later, showing that his sacrifice and his perfect life was sufficient for your sin and mine. If you've placed your faith and trust in that this morning, and you're living your life according to your, what's right in your own eyes, the consequence will always be dysfunction in your life. Dysfunction. And so what I want us to do this morning before we dive into this passage of Scripture is I want us to take a moment to pray. And I just want to encourage you to pray this. Lord, would you show me in my life where I'm living it according to my own eyes rather than to your word? Would you pray that with me? God, we're here today. We say at Salem Chapel, when your word is open, your mouth is open. And Lord, I pray for that person that may be here today in this auditorium right now, sitting here, who's never placed their trust in you as their Savior. They've been trying to live life on their own. Maybe that person is watching online right now, listening as they go for a run, as they're driving to a destination. Lord, would you show them today how much you love them? That in spite of their sinful life, you came to provide salvation for them. And that today would be the day that they put their full trust in you. Lord, for those of us who have made that glorious and life-changing decision, Lord, it's so easy for us to say we believe that Jesus Christ is our king, but then to live as though we want, we'll do Whatever's right in our eyes, God, would you show us where we're living that way? May we not explain or think of your conviction if we experience this morning as a sign of your judgment, but rather a sign of your love so that we can get back in step with you and experience your best for our life. We pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Here's what I wanna do this morning. I wanna give you three consequences of doing what's right in your own eyes. Because if that's what we're not supposed to do, then I think it's good that we're reminded of the consequences when we live life that, that way. And the consequences that we're going to see by living life according to what's right in our own eyes are consequences that we see in Judges 17 and 18. So let's start in verse 1. It says this, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. 
Micah means who is like Jehovah. It's a great name. We have people in our church named that. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it into my ears, behold, the silver is with me and I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. Now, I don't know what household you grow up in, in, but if I get caught stealing something when I was growing up in my house, that was not the reaction of my mother. Probably not for you either. Shouldn't be either. Verse 3. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal, metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So here's what happens. Micah steals from his mama. Thumbs up. Good decision. Thumbs down. Bad decision. Yeah, bad decision. I mean, how bad do you have to deal with steel from your mom? Come on. 1,100 pieces of silver. And his mom doesn't know who did it, so she, cre- she, she states this curse. Now, one thing you'll see as you read in the Old Testament about Israel, they're very superstitious. So Micah doesn't want to experience that curse. So he says, Mom, I got some great news. I found your 1,100 pieces of silver. Awesome. And then he proceeds to say, which I would not if I was Micah, I'm the one that took it. And his mom's like, thank you, my son. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take some of that money and I'm going to give it to you so you can go to, the, go to the blacksmith and he can make us some more idols to put in our house. Can you already see the, start to see the dysfunction here? Like it's starting to see how this could make a great reality show today, Right? If you're into that sort of thing. Verse four, so when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, just as I said, took it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. Now look at verse five. And the man Micah had a shrine. So he has this place of worship for these idols in his house. Mind you, these are Israelites. These are not people like the Ammonites or other people that we've seen that we would expect that behavior. None of the man of Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod, which was, a, which was an image in a household of gods. And he ordained one of his sons who became priest. So not only does he steal from his mom, and not only is mom evidently okay with that, she's just happy she got her silver back. She doesn't care where it came from. But now Micah also says, hey, you know what? You know what would be awesome? We got this little house of worship in our house where we worship our gods. You know what would be also great? Let's have a priest. So what am I going to do? I'm going to ordain one of my sons to be priest. Now, here's the problem with that. Because in Old Testament law, which we actually see in Numbers chapter 3, priests only came from the line of Aaron. If you go back to Exodus, you have Moses who leads the people of Israel. You have Aaron who's a second-hand man who leads the worship in Israel. And out of his line came all the Levitical priests. Why do I say that? I say that to show you that Micah had no right to do what he did. He had no authority to do what he did. In fact, what he did was contrary to the word of God. So in these five verses... We have most of the Ten Commandments being broken. The 
Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 were God's law to the people of Israel and how they lived. That would have been the equivalent to their word of God like we have today. We have more than the Ten Commandments. We have 66 books. But to them, this was God's word as it stood at that time. And here's what's crazy. You don't see anywhere in verses 1 through 5, trust me, I've looked multiple times, where you see Micah feeling any sort of guilt whatsoever for doing something contrary to what, the God's, what God's word says. No sense of guilt, no sense of remorse. In fact, as we will continue reading, he actually thinks that by doing things, he has the favor of God on his life. I look at this home of Micah's and I'm like, holy cow, what an absolute train wreck. I mean, his wife's not mentioned here, but I'm sure he had a wife. He's got a mom who lives with him who's rich, evidently. He's got, a, he's got sons and he's ordained one of them as a priest to serve in his little house of worship. I mean, it's an absolute dysfunctional, chaotic a mess spiritually type of home. Here's the first consequence that happens when we do what's right in our own eyes. We experience dysfunction in our home. In our home. That's where it starts. I mean, none of us would say, you're never gonna hear a preacher say this. We're gonna talk about how to experience harmony in the home. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 17, verses one through five? It's never gonna happen. I'm just telling you, it's never gonna happen. If it does, you may wanna decide on a different church. Um, It's never gonna happen. Why? Because all this is is moral confusion and spiritual confusion and dysfunction. Why? Because they were operating their home according to what they thought was right, according to their eyes, according to what was best for them. Even in that relationship with a son and a mother, no, no, I'm gonna benefit from even robbing from my own mother. I mean, you see the moral degradation that is happening here over years and years and years and years of being less concerned about what the Lord says and more concerned about what I want to do. But here's what I want to do as we look at this dysfunction. Here's what I want to do under this first consequence is I want to just give you what are the Lord's instructions, not for dysfunction in your home, but for harmony in your home. Now, let me just preface it by this. I could do a whole series on these five things, but I believe these five things could literally be pillars that we could put so many other things in regards to the home. So let me give them to you quickly. Here's the first thing that I believe is part of the Lord's instruction for you experiencing harmony in your home. You need to love the Lord personally. So the Lord desires for you. That's what he instructs for you as a follower of Jesus Christ, that your love for the Lord should be a personal thing. We oftentimes want to jump, right, that if we're experiencing a dysfunctional marriage, we have always want to jump to that, hey, I'm here, Johnny, I'm here to meet with you, or I'm here to meet with you, Pastor Aaron or Pastor Mark, and really what we're saying is I'm here because I need you to fix him. Or I'm here because I need you to fix her. But it's interesting that when we look at God's word, the Lord places such an emphasis on, you want harmony in your home? 
You need to focus on yourself personally. Are you loving the Lord personally? Listen to Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 6. You, if you want to flip there real quick, you can or whatever, but you ought to write your name above that word you because that's who the Lord's talking to. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You know what that means, men? Husbands, fathers, men who are not yet husbands or fathers. That means that there's an intentionality that, man, I love the Lord. I'm reminded about how much he loves me. I want to spend time in his word. I want to develop my relationship with him. I want to develop a prayer life with him. I want to be engaged in his word, in a relationship with him. I'm making that a priority. Why? Because I will never experience harmony in any of my relationships if I'm not first making sure that I'm getting from the Lord what I need because I can't give what I'm not getting. Why do I say that even before you're married and before you have kids? Because I can tell you right now, a light switch doesn't flip on when I say I do. And it definitely doesn't switch on when the baby comes out of the mom and all of a sudden I'm holding him. If anything, I'm scared to death. (laughs) But before I can be the husband that I need to be, before I can be the father that I need to be, before I can be the son that I need to be, I have to be who the Lord wants me to be. Love the Lord personally. Here's the second thing. Love your spouse selflessly. If you're married, how am I to take what the Lord has instructed so that I can experience harmony in my home? Well, I gotta first develop that relationship with the Lord because as I said, I can't give what I'm not getting. But when I'm loving the Lord personally, then I'm able to love my spouse selflessly. Ephesians 5.22 says this, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord. What's the point in that? If I'm not submitting to the Lord and loving the Lord personally and cultivating that relationship with him, well, that's the very example that Paul gives and how I need to submit, support, be a partner with my husband. So if I'm not doing that with the Lord, no wonder I'm not doing that with my husband. Guys, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, husbands, love your wives just like I love you. So if I'm not being reminded of that love that the Lord has for me personally and how it doesn't matter what I do wrong, he's there to forgive, he's there to restore, he's there to comfort, regardless of my fears, regardless of whatever I'm experiencing, that's the same type of love that I need to give my spouse. So if I'm not experiencing that in my relationship with the Lord, it's no wonder I have dysfunction in my marriage because I can't give what I'm not getting. Because I'm living my life, I'm living in my marriage according to what's right in my eyes rather than according to what the Lord has said. How about this? Lead your family intentionally and consistently. That's also part of the Lord's instructions for harmony in your home. Moms and dads, you're leading your family with intentionality. It's not like, oh, we're awesome, we got two kids, we got three kids, we got five, however many of you have, one kid. Just gonna kind of figure it out. Can I kind of take it day by day? Rather than saying, wait a minute, the Lord's given you instruction 
and how you're to lead your family intentionally and consistently. Let me read it for you real quick. Deuteronomy 6, 7. We just read verses 5 and 6 a minute ago. You shall teach them diligently. Teach what? The words in verse verse 6 that the Lord has said need to be on your heart. His words. That you need to teach them diligently to your children. That means it has the idea of intentionality. How? When you talk of them, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. What is the Lord doing there? He says you need to be looking for ways to take events, to take moments of pain and moments of celebration and all different types of things and say, and look how you can weave the Lord's word and his principles into those situations to help them understand how the Lord's word is actually applicable and good and relates to life situations. You're starting to see why? If I'm not doing that personally, there's no way that I can do that with my kids. I got two teenagers now. Never thought I would say that. And I can tell you this, that it's a whole lot easier teaching them God's word when they're three, four, five, six, where you can like, you're gonna sit there, you're gonna listen, and you're gonna love it. Versus now where there's intentionality where, okay, what's an opportunity? This is going on here. This is going on. This is going on at school. This is going on in a team. This is going on at home. These are feelings that we're feeling. How do I take God's word and relate it and interweave it when we sit down, when we walk? All these different types of things. How am I making God's word relevant and real to where they live? So that when they look at God's word, they don't look at it as a stale book that really doesn't apply to me, but they see it as something that can change their life why because it's changing mine and it's changing yours lead with intentionality give you a perfect example so lucas is 13 years old and he's grown into a young man and i was just hit with this the other day you know we've done this with lily where it's like okay You guys have been going through a Bible reading tool if you're in a life group. And I got hit with this. Man, I'm spending so much time to teach this to all these different people. And how am I doing that with Lucas? So I went, I printed out the Bible reading tool. I printed out a reading plan that we're gonna walk through a book. I printed all those things. Every Wednesday, we're gonna do lunch. We're gonna read through that. Why? Because if I'm gonna obey God's word, and experience harmony with my kids rather than create and multiply dysfunction. I don't raise a son and a daughter and neither do you according to what's right in my eyes. That's a recipe for dysfunction. How do I do it? I do what the Lord has given me. Intentionality, consistently. I discipline, just like the Lord disciplines me because he loves me, Hebrews 12, seven through nine. Let's keep going. Children, obey their parents respectively. That's another part of God's instruction for harming on the home. Children, obey. Ties right into leading your family intentionally. That's what the Lord desires. If you are living in your parents' home, then there's obedience there There's honor there, and guess what? I honor my parents till I'm with the Lord. That doesn't change how old I get. Why? 
Because it's not about what's right according to my eyes. It's about what the Lord has said. Because I want to experience harmony, not dysfunction in my home. You don't see any type of honoring going in in verses 1 through 5. You don't see any of these things going on. These aren't new instructions. How about this one? Worship the Lord corporately. See, what Micah wanted to do is he wanted to say, this is the way I want to worship. This is what I want to do. I want to sign my own priest. I want to make my own little house. I want to worship my own little idols. But the Lord says, no, no, no. There's important to experience harmony in your home that you're valuing worshiping him corporately. See, we don't have a tabernacle today. We don't make sacrifices today. Jesus has come. He is the ultimate sacrifice. We gather together to worship him. But the Lord has said in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. But we are to encourage one another to good works as the day is approaching. In other words, as the world gets worse and gets closer to Jesus coming back. Listen to me, I say this out of love. Some of you are experiencing dysfunction in your home because you have not valued this. Do you want to know the number one reason why when kids leave a Christian home, they don't serve the Lord anymore, they don't go to church anymore? You're like, well, they go to these liberal colleges and they poke holes in their faith and they teach them all this humanistic thinking. And yeah, that goes on in liberal, but that's not the reason. You know what the reason is? Because they grew up in a home that didn't show them how important church was. Here's what I'm concerned about as your pastor, saying this out of love, is that 2020 has caused some of us to abandon this as part of God's strategy to experience harmony in the home. And that's not even a matter of, well, I'm watching it online versus I'm in person. Some of you who may be watching this online, you, this is the first time that you've tuned in since this pandemic began. And I'm glad you did today. But the reality is, is I wonder if the reason why you're experiencing dysfunction in your home is because you've forgotten what the Lord has said in order to experience that because you've been doing what is right in your own eyes. It's a consequence. Here's a second consequence, and it's found in verses 7 through 13. Let me read verse 7. It says, Now there was a young man of Bethlehem of Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Now let me stop there. So Jonathan is the name of this young Levite that we find here in these verses 7 through 13. We don't hear his name until we get to verse 30 of chapter 18, but that is his name. He's the son of Gershom, which Gershom was the child of Moses and his wife Zipporah. So chances are this is the grandson of Moses, and he's a Levite. He's from a city of Bethlehem, which is not one of the cities where the Levites lived, where they were supposed to live. So he's not even from a place that he should be living. 
And he runs into Micah because he's just wandering around looking for a way to provide for himself. Why? Because the people of Israel were called by God, the 12 tribes, to give of their resources so that the tribe of Levi could be provided for. Because the tribe of Levi was the one tribe that did not get any allotment of land. And so it was the responsibilities of the other tribes and part of their worship to the Lord was for them to give of their resources so that the tribe of Levi could have the food that they needed, the clothing that they needed, and be provided for. And because the children of Israel aren't doing that and being obedient to what the Lord has said, and like I said, doing what was right in their own eyes, has caused Jonathan to be like, well, hey, man, I got to go find somewhere to live, and I got to go find someone that's going to give me some money, and I got to find another job to do. So we see Jonathan here literally abandoning his ministry and just surviving. Let's keep reading. And it says in verse 10, and Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. Can you imagine? He's like, hey, I got one. What? What's better than one? Two. I mean, I got one priest. How awesome would it be to have two priests? So he says, stay with me and I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year. So he's like, I'm going to give you a great salary and a suit of clothes. I'm going to give you some awesome clothes to wear. And I'm going to provide for you and your living. And what do you think Jonathan's response is? It says, and the Levi went in, sign me up. Way better than serving these children of Israel. Verse 11, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, which as we already covered was not his right to do. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me. Because I have a Levite as a priest. Do you see the dysfunction there? Micah's like, well, I want more of God's favor. Nothing's happened to me before. So I'm going to make this guy a priest. He's actually a Levite, so he actually can be a priest. So better than even my son, who's not. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. So let me make him my priest. And man, I can't wait for the blessings of God to come. You see, the motivation of Micah is not serving the Lord at all. What is it? It's all about serving himself. Jonathan's not about serving the Lord and trusting the Lord. What is he all motivated about? Serving himself leads to the second consequence that I want to give you when we do what's right in our own eyes. It just doesn't cause dysfunction in our home, but dysfunction in our home, you know what it bleeds into? Dysfunction in our church, in your church. See, the sad part to me in these verses of 7 through 13 is that Micah had confused himself to thinking that doing what is right in his own eyes would give him the favor of God in his life. And how often can we get caught up in that? Well, I know God's word says this about how he wants his church to operate. I know how... God says this about how he wants my home to operate. I know God's word says this on how I'm to, you know, have consistency in leading my home and, and having an environment of discipline that shows my kids that I love them. Yeah, I know that the Lord has these things set up for how his church is to operate. But you know, at the end of the day, pragmatism is king. It's all about what seems to work, what makes sense to me. So let's just go that route. 
And as long as we got people in the seats and as long as the budget is being met and as long as everything, as long as people seem to be getting along with one another, then we're gonna take that as though we're doing exactly what the Lord wants us to do. It's doing what's right in our own eyes. So let me give you instructions that are from the Lord for harmony in the church. Can I give you three of them? Here's the first one. And we see Israel disobeying this, and so we need to be reminded of this. Here's the Lord's instruction for harmony in the church. Because like I said, we don't have tabernacle. We have church. We are the church. We're gathered together. We're called to gather together. Here's the first piece of instruction that I see in God's word from Galatians 6 and 7 and 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. We're to steward what we have been given faithfully. Let it not be said of Salem Chapel that the mission of God was hindered. The opportunities to engage in the mission of God, better way to say it, were hindered because the people of Salem Chapel did not understand that what they had been given by the Lord was not to be given to to just lavish on themselves, but to steward for a king in his kingdom. Like, I think it's good just to remind ourselves, like the people of Israel were given, hey, you like it when you go to Tabernacle and there's priests there so that you can be able to worship. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to give of your resources something greater than yourselves that you can see every one of Israel benefit from and also be assigned to the nations who don't believe in the Lord that you are different. The Lord gives us the same opportunity. The things that are mentioned on this piece of paper, you know how they happened? Was the Lord gonna accomplish these things? Absolutely. But when we give of our resources to the Lord, you know what happens? We get the opportunity to see us, though we don't deserve it, to be involved in something greater than ourselves and to receive the return on investment that's not even ours but has been given to us by God that we can say, Lord, thank you for giving me the opportunity to invest in something that will last, to invest in something that impacts people, the people that you created. But you know what? What's unfortunate about most churches in the United States, less than 10% of the people actually give of their resources to the church. So that means over 90% of the people are not conducting and obeying what the Lord has said so that they can experience the blessing of participating in God's mission. And it leads to dysfunction in the church. Let me just be clear. God has called, if we think about this church, God has called the Pereira family to give of our resources just as much as he's called any other person who calls this place their family. But why? So that we can have the joy and the opportunity to see the local church that God has given to this people on 610 Coliseum Drive to have an impact for his kingdom. God's gonna do what God's gonna do, but let it not be said that God passes over Salem Chapel from having the opportunity to benefit and to rejoice in what the Lord has done because we are not being faithful to what the Lord has called us to do. Dysfunction in the church. How about this? Elders also need to lead selflessly and obedient. That's another element of instruction that the Lord gives in regards to his church so that harmony can happen. Do you see that happening in this passage of scripture? Micah's not leading self, selflessly. 
Jonathan's not leading selflessly. They're both being disobedient to the Lord, what the Lord has wanted. God's word says in Hebrews 13, the elders will give an account to the Lord for how they lead his people. Keeps me up at night sometimes, and it should. There's a responsibility there. He's given qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Not that those qualifications shouldn't be true of you if you're not in those roles, but there's an expectation. No, no, no. We're going to lead his church his way, not what's right in our own eyes. How about this? We worship the Lord reverently. That when we come into this place, it's not about, eh, I don't like that song. Oh, he's leading today and not him or her. Oh, he's preaching today of all weeks. Oh, I don't really like that teacher that I'm dropping off my kids to. Why didn't I know that before? I mean, we go on and on and on. Ah, the coffee's not great today. They don't even have coffee right now during COVID. Like, we could go on and on and on and on, right? Well, wait a minute. Somehow we've lost sight of when we gather in this place that we are here for one purpose, and that is to worship our king to worship him reverently. And when we come into, the, with, come into these doors with that focus, then we won't miss out on the harmony that the Lord wants to do in our hearts. Here's the last consequence, and it's found in verses 18, chapter 18, I'm sorry. And when we're doing what's right in our own eyes, there's also dysfunction in our society. And I'm not saying that everything in society is your fault or mine. But Israel was a chosen people. Israel was to be a beacon for what it looked like to serve the Lord. Israel was made to create a hunger in people that did not serve the Lord to want to serve the Lord. And what concerns me is and it goes all the way back to what I first said in the instructions in the home, that if God's people are not loving him personally and pursuing him personally and, and, and then allowing that to impact their marriages and impact their families, if the church is not being what the church has been called to be, by being all in and saying, no, no, we're arm in arm, side by side, we're stewarding our resources together, we're living for the Lord. The leadership is pursuing the Lord selflessly. No, no, no. We understand why we gather and, and the purpose of why we gather. That it should be no surprise that our society is continuing and continuing to devolve. Here's why I say that. Because here's the things that I see in this chapter. We don't have time to deal, deal with them and read this chapter. But you see covetousness because the tribe of Dan already had land given to them by Joshua in Joshua 19, when he divvied up the land, they didn't like the land, they didn't be, or weren't obedient, didn't conquer the land in Judges 1, so they wanted to look for other land. There was covetousness there. They had ungodly counsels, so they run into Micah's priest, Jonathan, they run into him, and they're like, hey, you're a priest, why don't you tell us if this is what we should do? And Jonathan, because he doesn't have a backbone, and he's all about serving himself, says, yeah, I think it's a great idea. So they're like, great, God told us to do it. They get on the godly counsel. You get robbery and intimidation, because these spies of the tribe of Dan who are looking at this land, they find out that Micah's got some silver gods in his little palace there of worship, so they steal those gods, 
gods, and they want to adopt them as their own. So you have robbery and intimidation. Then you have violence and murder because the tribe of Dan goes into these people who are peaceful, and they want their land, so they kill everybody in it. They commit violence and murder, and then they commit idolatry because they're the very first tribe in Israel who sets up corporate idolatrous worship. You got all that going on, all that dysfunction in society, and it's from the people of God who should know better. And we live in a today, we live in a day-to-day where we are allowing a society who we shouldn't be surprised doesn't wants to do what's right in their own eyes. Why? Because they don't know the Lord. Most of those people, most of the, most of the people don't know the Lord. They don't believe in the Bible. We should not be surprised by that at all, that they, that they are living in certain ways that contradict God's word. But the problem is, is we have a lot of people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ that are allowing society to dictate what they believe, how they're gonna behave, rather than saying to themselves, Lord, what is right and wrong according to your word? Not my eyes, your word. Because that's the Lord's instruction for followers of Jesus Christ to experience harmony in their society is we have a group of people that God has sovereignly placed where we live, work, and play to make a difference, a positive difference, a kingdom difference. But that's only gonna happen when we say, I'm gonna determine what's right and wrong, not by the culture, not by society, but according to your word. That's how we experience harmony. We're also called to live missionally. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 says, we are ambassadors, representatives of God, God choosing to make his appeal through us. God gave that same responsibility to Israel as his people. God's now given it to his church. That we have the greatest message, the greatest good news That Jesus Christ provided salvation for every man, woman, and child who places their faith and trust in him. But that's only going to be a compelling message when his people are living it themselves and engaging in the opportunities that God has sovereignly placed them. Oh, friend, where's the dysfunction? In your home? And how you're viewing this church? and how you're viewing society. You know, I wrote these down. They aren't on the screen. I wrote these down last night when I was looking over the message. And I wrote this down. Every day I get up, I ought to do four things. Number one, thank the Lord for whose I am. Lord, as I get up today, I just want to thank you that I'm a child of God salvation that I have in you. Secondly, remind myself who I'm living for. Man, I got a busy day today. Got meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. Got this big deal that's supposed to happen. Lord, let me remind myself who I am living for. You're my king. Thirdly, I engage in God's word for how to live for him. God, I don't want to go into my day without engaging in your word and saying, Lord, what do you have for me today? Let me just pray that before I read. Lord, what do, I, what do you have for me? I'm in this reading plan and judges, man, it seems like, what in the world am I going to get out of this? Lord, would you just show me? Lastly, pray for the strength to live for him. Okay, God, I'm yours. I praise that I'm yours. I'm living for you today. I've engaged in your word. God, would you give me the strength 
to be who I need to be today, to react the way that I need to react today so that I can make a difference in the society that you place me. Those four things. Now we're gonna take part in communion as we close this morning. When you came in the doors this morning, I have mine in my pocket because I can't grab it being up here, but we have these communion cups. And let me just explain for a minute how these work if you're new with us. COVID proof, by the way. There's a top part where you peel off the top to get to the bread, and there's a second part where you peel to get to the cup. I'm not asking you to do that now. I'll walk you through that here in a moment after we sing. But let me just say this. We're told in Scripture, and we're going to read it here in a moment, that we're told to observe communion. What's communion? Communion is simply, there's nothing magical about this bread in this cup, but what it does is it reminds us that we have a king. His name is Jesus. He loves us. He doesn't rule over us with some iron fist. No, no, no. He rules over us with his love. He gave his life, his body for you and for me so that I could have salvation and a relationship with a holy God for all of eternity. He gave his blood, he shed his blood, which is represented by this juice. He shed his blood because without the blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And we're called to remember this because I don't know about you, but I have a heart that wants to do what's right in my own eyes. I need to be reminded that I'm not my own king, that my truth is not my king. But I have a king whose name is Jesus. And the instructions that my king has given me are for my best, not for me to be shortchanged. And so as, as, as the band sings this song, I just want to encourage you in this moment to just examine your heart. Remember what we prayed, Lord, would you show me where I'm living life according to what's right in my own eyes? And confess it. Say, Lord, forgive me for thinking that I'm king. I ask forgiveness of that sin, and I want to walk a relationship with you. If you haven't gotten one of these cups, just raise your hand, and they'll get you one. But let's just, let's confess where we need to confess, and let's celebrate where we need to celebrate. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me just encourage you during this time to call out to the Lord, to ask for his forgiveness. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will be saved. You can walk out of here today as a follower of Jesus Christ, but let's, let's spend time with the Lord this morning.